I talk to people very frequently whose families have provided them with too much protection. And they know it themselves. And that means they're deprived of necessity. You know, one of the things that you see in, in, in the United States, for example, is that um, the children of first-generation immigrants often do better than, the chi- than, the, than their children. And the reason for that is that the children of first-generation Im- immigrants have necessity driving them. And you don't know how much you need necessity to drive you because maybe you're not very disciplined. And if and a catastrophe doesn't immediately befall you if you don't act forthrightly today, then maybe you never act forthrightly, right? Because the, the, the gap between your foolishness and the punishment is, is lengthened by your unearned wealth. And so you never grow up and learn. And you have to get yourself away from your dependency in order to allow necessity to drive you forward. And that's to become independent and to become mature. And I think part of what's happening in our culture is that the, the, the force that's attacking the, the forthright movement forward of young men in particular is afraid of the power of men because it's confused about the distinction between power and authority and competence. Like an, a man who's, who has authority and competence has power as a byproduct. But the authority and competence is everything. And, and, and people who can't understand that fail to make the distinction between power and authority and competence. And they're afraid of power. And so they destroy authority and competence. And that's a terrible thing because we need authority and competence. What else is going to, what else is going to allow us to prevail in the long run? And so you get away from your country and you get away from your kin and from your father's house, right? And you go out there and you establish yourself in the world. It's a call to adventure. That's what this, the, the first lines in Ab- the Abrahamic story is a call to adventure. So, great, unto a land that I will show you. Well, you know, what does that mean? You know, what, one of the things that I've been struck very hard by a number of writers, Carl Jung, obviously among them, I mean, he, he wrote things like Nietzsche that if you understand them, they just break you into pieces, you know. And, and one of the things that Jung understood and the psychoanalysts understand is one of the most terrifying elements of psychoanalytic thinking is very tightly allied with religious thinking, which is that you are not the master of your own house. There are spirits that dwell in you, within you, meaning you have a will and you can exercise a certain amount of conscious control over your being, but there are all sorts of things that occur within you that seem to be beyond your capacity to control. Your dreams, for example, that's a really good example, or your impulses, for example. You might think of those as so foreign from you that they're not even, you don't even want them to be part of you. But, but more subtly even, how about what you're interested in? What compels you? Like, where does that come from? Exactly. Because you can't, you can't conjure it up of your own accord, you know? So if you're a student and you're taking a difficult course, you might say to yourself, well, I need to sit down and study for three hours. But then you sit down and that isn't what happens. Your attention goes everywhere. And you might say, well, whose attention is it then if it goes everywhere? Because you say it's your attention. It's like, well, if it's your attention, maybe you'd be able to control it. But you can't. And so then you might think, well, Jen, just exactly what the hell is controlling it? And you might say, well, it's random. It's, well, it better not be random. I can tell you that. That's, that happens to some degree in schizophrenia. There's an element of randomness in that. It's not random. It's driven by the action of, of phenomena that I think are best considered as something like subpersonalities, although even that's only a partial description. 
you can't make yourself interested in something. Interest manifests itself and grips you. That's a whole different thing. And so what is it that's gripping you? And, and how do you conceptualize that? Is that a divine power? Well, it's divine as far as you're concerned because it grips you and you can't do anything about it. And so there's a calling in you towards what you're compelled by and what you're interested in. And sometimes that might be very dark and sometimes not. But you're compelled forward by your interest. And so, and so the idea that what moves you away from your country and your father's house and the comforts of your childhood home is, is something that's beyond you and that you listen to and hearken to. That's exactly right. And you can say, well, I don't want to call that God. It's like, it doesn't matter what you call it exactly. It doesn't matter to what it is, what it's called. It still is. And if you don't listen to it, that's the other thing. If you don't listen to it, and I've been a clinician and talked to enough people now, as old as I am, to know this absolutely. If you do not listen to that thing that beckons you forward, you will pay for it like you cannot possibly imagine. You'll have everything that's terrible about life in your life and nothing about it that's good. And worse, you'll know that it was your fault and that you squandered what you could have had. So, this is not only a calling forth, but a warning unto a land that I will show thee. And, and that's it, that I will show thee. That, and you don't want to be too concrete about this, you know. There's all sorts of new territories that you can inhabit if you... There's, there's abstract and conceptual territories. If you go to university and you study biology or you study physics or, or any discipline, you're in a territory, right? You're in the territory that all the scholars have established. And then as you master the discipline, you move out beyond the established territory into the unknown. And, and that's a new land, right? Maybe it's even a land of your enemies for that matter. But it's a new land. The frontier is always in front of you. And so, you know, when the earth was less inhabited than it is now, the frontier was... The psychological frontier and the geographical frontier was the same thing, and now they've separated to some degree because there's not so much geographical frontier. But there's, the frontier is a place that never disappears, and the land that's beyond the land that you know is always there, and it's always where you should go. And all of that's packed into these, what, four phrases. So, well, so when I've been thinking about narrative, you look at the world through a story. You can't, you can't help it. And, the story is what gives value to the world, or, or the story is what you extract from the value of the world. You can look at it either way. You're somewhere, and it's not good enough. Right? That's the eternal human predicament. Wherever you are isn't good enough. And to some degree, that's actually a good thing, because if it was good enough, well, <laughs> there's nothing for you to do. So it's actually maybe a good thing that it's insufficient. And that might be why sometimes having less is, is better than having more. And I don't want to be a Pollyanna about that. I mean, I know that there's deprivation that can reach to the point where it's, no, where it's completely counterproductive. But it isn't always the case that starting with little is... You, if you start with little, you start with more possibility. It's something like that. So you move from always from what's unbearable about the present to some better future, right? And if you don't have that, then you have, no, you have nothing but threat and... A negative emotion. You have no positive emotion because the positive emotion is generated in the conception of the better future and then the evidence that you generate yourself that you're moving towards it. That's where the positive and fulfilling meaning of life comes. So you want to set up this structure properly. It's very, very important. And so what it means is that you want to be going somewhere that's good enough so that the going is worth the while. 
And you can ask yourself that. And that's partly what we tried to build into the future authoring program, which is, well, we know what's wrong with life. It's rife with suffering and insufficiency and deception and evil. It's all of that. Obviously, okay, what would make the journey worthwhile? Well, you can ask yourself that. It's like, all right, in order to bear up under this load, what is it that I would need to be striving to attain? And if you ask yourself that, that's to knock and, and the door will open. That's what that means. If you ask yourself that, then you will find an answer and you'll think, you'll shrink away from it. You'll think, well, there's no way I could do that. It's like, well, you don't know what you could do. You don't know what's possible. And you're not as much as you could be. And so God only knows what you could, what you could do and have and give if you sacrificed everything to it. And that's the reason Abraham is constantly making sacrifices. And it's archaic, right? He's burning up like baby lambs. But like, well, they're alive. You know, that's something. And, and they're valuable. And that's something. It's, you have to admit, even if you think about it as a modern person, that the act of sacrificing something might have some dramatic compulsion to it. You know, to go out into a flock and to take something that's newborn and to cut its throat and to bleed it and to burn it might be a way of indicating to yourself that you're actually serious about something. And it isn't so obvious that we have rituals of seriousness like that now. And so it's not so obvious that we're actually serious about anything. And so maybe that's not such a good thing. And so maybe we shouldn't be thinking that these people were so archaic and primitive and superstitious. It's possible that they knew something that we don't. And certainly in the Abrahamic stories, one of the things that maintains Abraham's covenant with God is his continual willingness to sacrifice. And it's so that sacrificial issue is so important because you are not committed to something unless you're willing to sacrifice for it. Commitment and sacrifice are the same thing. And I think it's, it borders on miraculous that those concepts are embedded into this narrative at the level of dramatic action. You know, instead of abstract explanation, people are acting this out. And the, and the fundamental conception is so profound that it's really quite, it's quite awe-inspiring. It's, it's breathtaking, really, when you understand what message is trying to be conveyed. You have to make sacrifices. And what do you have to sacrifice? You have to sacrifice that which is most valuable to you currently that's stopping you. And God only knows what that is. It's certainly the worst of you. It's certainly that. And God only knows to what degree you're in love with the worst of you. So, well, so you move from the unbearable present to the ideal future. And, and you can't help that. You have to live in a structure like that. That's your house. That's another way of thinking about it. And if you want to get your house in order, and if you want it to be a place that you can live properly, then you have to plan the future that is perfect. And then I think, well, what does that mean? And it means it's good for you. Right? And one of the things that I, I'm, I do all the time with my clinical and consulting clients is try to figure out what would be good for them. But we, we do more than that. We try to think, okay, well, what, how can we set this up so it's really good for you and that all the side consequences of that are things that are good for other people? There's this idea in Jungian psychology called the circumambulation. And Jung had this idea that you had a potential future self, which would be in potential everything that you could be and that it manifests itself moment to moment in your present life by making you interested in things. And the things that you're interested in are the things that would guide you along the path that would lead you to maximal development. Now, it sounds like a metaphysical idea or a, or a mystical idea even, but 
But it's not. It's, it's not. It's a really profoundly biological idea. The idea is something like, well, you're set up so that you're automatically interested in those things that would fully expand you as a well-adapted creature. Well, like, there's nothing radical about that idea. How el what else could possibly be the case? Unless there's something fundamentally flawed about you, that is what the, the situation would be. It's kind of interesting to think about how that would be manifest moment to moment, but the idea is something like, well, your interest is captured by those things that lead you down the path of development. Well, that better be the case. Okay, so that's fine. And so there's some utility in pursuing those things that you're interested in. That's the call to adventure, let's say. So, and the call to adventure takes you all sorts of places. Now, the problem with the call to adventure is, like, what the hell do you know? You might be interested in things that are kind of warped and bent. And often it's the case that when new parts of people manifest themselves and grip their interests, say, they do it very badly and shoddily. And so you stumble around like an idiot when you try to do something new. That's why the fool is the precursor to the savior from the, from the symbolic perspectives, because you have to be a fool before you can be a master. And if you're not willing to be a fool, then you can't be a master. So, so you're going to, it's, it's an error, <clears throat> error ridden process. And that's also laid out in the Old Testament stories, because the first thing that happens to all these patriarchal figures when God kicks them out of their father's house when they're like 84 is that they, they run into all sorts of trouble, and some of it's social, and some of it's natural, and some of it's a consequence of their own moral inadequacy. So they're fools. And, but, but the thing that's so interesting is that despite the fact that they're fools, they're still supposed to go on the adventure, and that they're capable of learning enough as a consequence of moving forward on the adventure so that they straighten themselves out across time. And so it's something like this. So this circumambulation that Jung talked about was this continual we'll return to this, this continual circling in some sense of who you could be. You might notice, for example, that there are themes in your life. You know, when you go back across your experiences, you see you kind of have your typical experience that sort of repeats itself. And there might be variation on it, like a musical theme, but it's, it's like you're, you're circling yourself and getting closer to yourself as you move across time. That's the circumambulation. Now, Remember that for a sec, because we'll go back to it. Okay, so imagine that something glimmers before you. It's an, an interest that's dawning, and you decide, well, first of all, you're paralyzed. You think, well, how do I know if I should pursue that? It's probably a stupid idea. And the proper response to that is, you're right, it probably is a stupid idea, because almost all, all ideas are stupid. And so the, the probability that as you move forward on your adventure that you're going to get it right the first time is zero. It's just not going to happen. And so then you might think, well, maybe I'll just wait around until I get the right idea, and which people do, right? So they're like 40-year-old, 13-year-olds, which is not a good idea. And so they wait around until it's waiting for Godot, until they finally got it right. But the problem is you're too stupid to know when you've got it right. So waiting around isn't going to help, because even if it, the perfect opportunity manifested itself to you in your incomplete form, the probability that you would recognize it as the perfect opportunity is zero. You might even think it's the worst possible idea that you've ever heard of anywhere. Highly likely. Highly likely. So, so you have, there's, Nietzsche, Nietzsche called that a will, will to stupidity, which I really liked. So, because he thought of stupidity as being, it, you know, it's, it's, you have to take it into account fundamentally and work with it. And so, and so you can take these tentative steps on your pathway to destiny 
and you can assume that you're going to do it badly. And that's really useful because you don't have to beat yourself up. It's pretty easy to do it badly. But the thing is, it's way better to do it badly than not to do it at all. And that's the continual message that echoes through these historical stories in Genesis. It's like, these are flawed people. They, they should have got the hell out of their house way before they did. Um, and they go out and they stumble around in tyranny and famine and self-betrayal and, and violence. And, but it's a hell of a lot better than just rotting away at home. And that's, the, that's great. So that's good. And so why is that? Well, okay, so you, you start your path and you think that you're heading, you know, towards your star. And so you go in that direction. And then, because you're here, the world looks a particular way. But then when you move here... The world looks different, and you're different as a consequence of having made that voyage. And so what that means is that now that thing that glimmers in front of you is going to have shifted its location because you weren't very good at specifying it to begin with, and now that you're a little sharper and more focused than you were, it's, it's going to reveal itself with more accuracy to you. And so then you have to take a, you know, it's almost like a 180-degree reversal. But... It isn't because, you know, you've, I mean, you've gone this far, and that's a long ways to get that far. But that's a lot farther than you would be if you just stayed where you were waiting. And so it doesn't matter that you overshoot continually. Because as you overshoot, even if you don't learn what you should have done, you're going to continually learn what you shouldn't keep doing. And if you learn enough about what you shouldn't keep doing, then that's tantamount at some point to learning at the same time what you should be doing. So it's okay. So it's like this. Now, what's cool about it, though, I think, is that as you progress, the degree of overshooting starts to decline, right? And that we know that there's nothing hypothetical about that. As you learn a new skill, like even to play play a song on the piano, for example, you overshoot madly. You're making all sorts of mistakes to begin with, and then the mistakes, they, they disappear. There's a great TED talk, I think it was, about this guy uh, set up a really advanced computational recording system in his home and recorded every single utterance his young child made while learning to speak. And then he put together the child's attempts to say certain phonemes and put them in the list and you can hear the child deviating madly to begin with and then after hundreds and hundreds of repetitions just zeroing right in on the exact phoneme. So, you know, I, you might not know this, but when kids babble, because they start babbling when they're quite young, they babble every human phoneme, including all sorts of phonemes that adults can't say, and then they, they die into their language so that after they learn, say, English, then there's all sorts of phonemes they can no longer hear or pronounce. But to begin with, it's all there, which is really quite interesting. But so they ze as they learn a particular language, they zero in on the proper way to pronounce that, and their errors minimize. And every time you learn something, that's how it is. And that's really useful to know, too, because it means that it's okay to wander around stupidly before you fix your destination. Now, you see that echoed in Exodus, right? Because what happens is that the Egyptians, or the Hebrews, escape a tyranny, which is kind of whatever you do personally and psychologically when you escape from your previous set of stupidly held and 
ignorant and stubborn axioms. It's like, away from that tyranny. It's like, great, I freed myself from that. Well, then what? Well, you think, well, now I'm on the way. It's, no, you're not. Now you're in the desert where you wander around stupidly, you know, and worship the wrong things until you finally organize yourself morally again and head in the proper direction. So that's worth knowing, too, because you think, well, I got rid of a lot of things, baggage, excess baggage that I didn't need in my life, and now everything's okay. It's like, no, it's not. You've got rid of a whole set of scaffolds that were keeping you in place, even though they were pathological. And now you have nothing, and nothing actually turns out to be better than something pathological, but you're still stuck with the problem of nothing. And, and that's, well, that's exactly why Exodus is structured the way that it is. It's that you escape from a tyranny, it's, hooray, we're no longer slaves. Yeah, well, now you're nihilistic and lost. It's not necessarily an improvement. But it is, but it is the pre... See, it's also useful to know that because you can also be deluded into the idea that, imagine that you're trying to become enlightened, which might mean to turn all those parts of you on that could be turned on. You think, well, that's just a linear pathway uphill. You know, it's just from one success to another. It's, no, it's not. It's like here you are and you're not doing too badly and the first step is a complete bloody catastrophe. It's worse. And then maybe you can pull yourself together and you hit a new pl plateau and then that crumbles and shakes and bang, it's worse again. And so because part of the reason that people don't become enlightened is because it's punctuated by intermittent deserts, essentially, by intermittent catastrophes. And if you don't know that, well, then you're basically screwed because you go ahead on your movement forward and you collapse and you think, well, that didn't work, I collapsed. It's like, no, that's par for the course. It's not indication that you failed, it's just indication that it's really hard. And that when you learn something, you also unlearn something. And the thing you unlearned is probably useful and unlearning it actually is painful. You know, let's say if you have to get out of a bad relationship. It's like not every, not any, there isn't any relationship that's 100% bad. And so when you jump out of it, well, maybe you're in better shape, but you're still lonesome and disoriented, and you don't know what your past was, and you don't know what your present is, and you don't know what your future is. It's, that's, not, that's why people stay with the devil they know instead of you know, looking for the devil they don't know. So, so anyways, the fact that you're full of faults doesn't mean you have to stop. And thank God for that. That's a really useful thing. And the fact that you're full of faults doesn't mean that you can't learn. And so you can posit an ideal, and you're going to be wrong about it, but it doesn't matter because what you're right about is positing the ideal, moving towards it. If the actual ideal isn't conceptualized perfectly, well, first, surprise, surprise, because, like, what are you going to do that's perfect? So it doesn't matter that it's imperfect. It just matters that you do it and that you move forward. So that's really, that's really positive news as far as I'm concerned, because you can actually do that, right? You can do it badly. Anyone can do that. So that's, that's useful.